The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. You found the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Here's the host, Bill Spone. Welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Today we'll be speaking with Brett Little. He's the program manager at the Green Home Institute. He approaches sustainability with thoughtfulness, enthusiasm, and engagement. In addition to providing consulting and verification services on thousands of residential green certified homes, he oversees educational services, providing training or moderations for hundreds of events with thousands of attendees. Additionally, he takes personal steps along these lines and shares his experiences. Got some links in the show notes where he talks about his radon monitoring experiences. And he did an article with Build With Rise on the carbon zero home renovation journey that he took place. You can find Brett on LinkedIn. Link again is in the show notes. And his day job is program manager at the Green Home Institute. There's a link to the Green Home Institute where I'm a member of the board of directors there. That's how I got to know Brett really well. So anyway, let's listen in as Brett shares with us his thoughts on sustainability for homes. Brett, good morning. Hey, good morning, Bill. For the audience, for the listeners, I met Brett and became aware of the Green Home Institute, or GHI, in probably 2019 when I was listening to a webinar by now a mutual friend of ours, Brett's and mine, Nate Adams, and he was talking about electrifying everything. And that was almost three years ago now. And it was a very interesting webinar and got me into scratching my head. like, who is this guy, Brett, and what is GHI? And I'm going to let him answer those questions for you listeners right now. So who is Brett Little? Yeah. Hey, everybody. Well, I'm just a normal guy who loves helping improve sustainability in the built environment as far as green building goes for residential homes, new and existing, a single family, multifamily, you name it. It's just something that I really enjoy doing. It first came out of a concern of climate change. Actually, interestingly enough, I didn't even know what climate change was until I started working at a coffee shop and they were offering organic coffee, soy milk that was powered by wind turbines, fair trade things. And Wikipedia had just come out at that time. I started looking into it and it started going down the rabbit hole, right? <laughs> and I'm like, wow, no one's ever told me about this in my family, friends, no one I work with has ever said anything about this. But this seems like a concern and it seems like something should be done about this. So took the sort of extreme approach at the beginning where you stop driving and you just ride your bike 15 miles and back to work every day and you stop eating meat and you stop putting on deodorant and yelling at people about not recycling. It was just horrible. <laughs> and then found my way into the sustainable business program at a local college to actually focus on the benefits and why we should be doing this to help our bottom line. And then having those more positive conversations <laughs> and then found my way here doing that. So, yeah. <laughs> now, I know you've actually made some modifications to your own home too in this process of learning is has like one led the other? Did you learn about something then implement it or did you implement it and then go back and learn about it? How did that go? Yeah, well, and like I said, with the environment, I didn't grow up knowing anything about construction or remodeling or homes either. No knowledge of that and got to learn about it at this position that I was thankful to be able to get into. 
and learn about green building for homes, learned about it that way from so I've only known about sustainability when it came to residential remodeling and construction. I didn't know anything different <laughs> as far as exposure to it. So I picked up obviously a lot of things along the way and got to do my first experiment in 2012 on an old 1926 home in Grand Rapids, where I got to play around with some sustainability ideas, increase the energy efficiency, get it certified to Green Star and learn a lot of things that I would never do again. And so when I bought my new home in 2016, and it was a newer home, I was working with a different scenario, a different situation, and a lot of lessons learned on what I wouldn't do and would do. And then of course, spent the next three years trying to figure out what do I want to do? How do I pay for it? So it's somewhat cost neutral. And then also, how do I make it so that it's replicatable, hopefully, for others in this situation. It's a personal journey, a personal commitment, and you had to balance things out. You had to make decisions based upon economics and availability, I'm sure. Yeah, availability came into play. I mean, who would have thought, right, in 2020 when I started doing it, that became a huge issue that normally wouldn't have been. So, yeah. Yeah, materials, COVID, really, that, and probably contractors, too. Did you do work yourself, or did you have others involved? I, for the most part, allowed the professionals to do it. It's just from my comfortability. I love doing the consulting, putting the project together, but certainly as far as actually doing any of it, it's just not my skill set. <laughs> and I feel like I want it done right. I'm going to let the contractors do it. So in my case, for the most part, I had plumbing, HVAC, solar, electrical, all come in. And I just looked at sort of the big picture of making sure that we were doing the right things. And I got involved in some of the testing and evaluation, which I get involved in to make sure it was done right. And I certainly caught a lot of issues that way. But yeah, left it up to the professionals for myself. So. so let's switch over to the Green Home Institute. Can you give us a background on where and why that was founded, the mission, that kind of thing? Yeah. So the Green Home Institute was founded in the year 2000. So we're, gosh, yeah, almost 22 years old. It was like in August. So our birthday was somewhere around August <laughs> uh, 2000. It really predated the United States green building chapters, which picked up sometime around 2005, depending on what state you're in, I guess. And so the idea at the time was that we needed a nonprofit that focused on sustainability in the building sector. So it was founded by a teacher who taught sustainable design at Ferris College, a building developer and designer, Bazzani, and then our founder, Mike Holcomb, who was a home inspector and then became an Energy Star partner, Energy Star for Homes partner. And in 2005, the United States Green Building Council started opening up all their chapters to focus on the commercial environment. So we took a detour off to say, okay, we're going to look at housing. And our biggest claim to fame is when the USGBC launched the Lead for Homes pilot program, really in 2005. It didn't really take off till 2008. And we became one of the original providers, as they call it, to service the Midwest and Canada. And so we really took off with a focus on any time a new home was built or heavily remodeled, single family or multifamily, that we would help use the lead criteria as a way to measure sustainability for residential housing. For quite a long time, that had been our biggest focus. You have some credentials, some background, some training. Is that true? Can you go a little bit into that? Yeah. So for myself, like I said, I've got a bachelor's in sustainable business, which is pretty cool and making sure that sustainability is built into all of our business practices. 
And then from there, I became a lead accredited professional within the homes rating system. I became a lead green raider. So I do go out on site and help inspect buildings for lead certification for residential buildings. And then I'm also a certified green home professional, which is our own internal certification program here at Green Home Institute for sustainability within our homes. And I'll be sure to put some links in the show notes to the Green Home Institute and the YouTube channel. Tell us about that. What's happening on the YouTube channel with Green Home Institute? Yeah, so I think it was 2013. I attended a couple, or I was asked to speak really about something, an online webinar where basically they took the idea of a conference expo and put it online. And back then that was like, wow. Yeah, free COVID, anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who would have thought? And so I was really inspired by that. And I thought, why don't we do that? Why don't we try it? So I don't know exactly when it happened, but in 2013, we started doing a monthly Wednesday webinar series. And then it sort of evolved into a weekly Wednesday webinar series. And I'm going to get to YouTube, but this is how we get to YouTube is that we started producing all of this great content with all of these amazing speakers on residential green building topics from around really the world now at this point. And back then we didn't have a YouTube channel and I thought, well, people were asking to watch the recording. So let's just post it on YouTube for those people, right? It was really just for those people, like who are 50 people who just missed the recording that day. And since then, we, I think, are now up to 9,000 subscribers as of last year, 240,000 views. And so it's really grown as a residential green building education channel that we've also went out back in 2017, pre-COVID days, they would be hosting these green building tours like in Chicago, they would do a green home tour. So I just went out with my camera, with my tripod, and I would just go live on Facebook in front of these homes. And they knew I was coming. It wasn't like a surprise. Sure. <laughs> this guy shows up. <laughs> I knew the USGBC Illinois chapter, so they knew I was coming. But we just went live and just started following the normal tour around and recorded it. And it was terrible. It was shaky. People were giving us terrible comments. Like they were like, I'm going to throw up. I can't hear anything. I can't see anything. Like, Brett, you are the worst person in the world. Like, <laughs> it's just, and yet we got huge ratings on those things. Like, people were watching them, they were liking them. <laughs> and we were posting them on the USGBC's education channel as well for continuing ed. We obviously started getting really good at it and started bringing in a little more production to it and getting better. And then started hiring actual film producers to go out and film these home tours. And then I would just ask the technical questions and then we would create a piece from there. And so right up until COVID hit, I think putting all that up on our YouTube and getting people behind the scenes where they couldn't have got to these homes has been successful. So in full disclosure, I'm a member of the board of directors of the Green Home Institute. I'm on their education committee and I got pulled into that because Brett did a live stream webinar with me, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you were our first one where we piloted the web approach, right? Where you're calling in from your house and I didn't have to, as much as I wanted to come over and hang out, <laughs> I really wanted to, it just didn't work out. So I think it was the first time where we 
tried that and had you call us in and take us through your house. So, And that worked out pretty well. I think the connection stayed firm or whatever. And we had a couple of cameras and went through some slides and things like that. That was a lot of fun. And I haven't run across a lot of that before. You also, you'd mentioned testing and evaluation of the homes and your own personal home. I know you've done a, a solar energy work on your house, but you've also done some stuff with radon. Want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. For us, we obviously with these green programs recommend all these prescriptive air quality measures, right? Radon systems, ventilation systems, range hood. But the question, of course, is how do we really know this is working? And how do we know that it's leading to the desired outcomes we want? And so thankfully, with the proliferation of these low cost and what I believe to be fairly accurate air quality monitors out there, I think we can finally now know that this is working. And if not, we can get quick feedback to see what the problem is. So I'm very grateful to some different air quality monitoring agencies that I've reached out to and they sent me some stuff to try. And one of them was an AirThings monitor that had a radon detection on it. And just so you all know, like I am in a radon zone, I think it's three or one, I forget which one is the least bad, right? It's EPA labels them. And so I believe it's three that's not concerning, one is concerning, but I could be wrong. It could be flipped there. (laughs) But anyway, we did the traditional test, the cheap test where you mail it in, in the basement. We got like 3.8 and action level is four. I got kids here in my house and I don't want to take any chances. I also know that the American version of action is different than our Canadian and European friends. And I take the precautionary principle to heart that I don't want to find out the hard way. So even though I'm in a low zone, even though we tested under the threshold, I wanted to put in a radon system in my project just to be safe, even for the sake of my kids. And also we've tested homes, went out and tested homes in zone ones. One we got back, the person was at a 23 on the scale where they should have been, again, four is where you want to take action. And we did later find out that that person was a nuclear submarine operator in their past life. So we thought maybe it's just radiating off of them, but (laughs) I don't know if there's any evidence of that. So we know that even these EPA zones, they're not quite accurate. And so we always recommend people put systems in. But with this monitor I had, we started getting elevated levels as the weather got colder above the four threshold. So we knew that we probably did the right thing. It probably goes down in the summer, up in the winter. But again, so you're, it's half exposure. And so one day what had happened was we got hit with a power outage. And this was before our battery was installed. The battery for your solar that backed up your house. Yeah, so I have a battery system and before it was installed. And so power went out and it knocked out the radon system. And the radon system didn't come back on. It needed to be plugged and unplugged. There's not like an on-off switch. You just unplug it and plug it back in. So anyway, any normal person would have never known that. They would have just... Wait, you're calling yourselves abnormal. (laughs) All right, now, just get that straight. (laughs) As far as home stuff go. So any normal person would have been like, they would have never thought anything of it. And certainly you can go down into your stinky basement if you want, and you can see... 
on the radon that it would have, I believe, if it's not working, there's this... The YouTube manometer is level across because there's no differential pressure. So you could have seen that, but I just, again, any normal person, it was hiding. I didn't see it. And so all of a sudden, my AirThings monitor just is like, and I'm like, what is happening right now? Because we were with the system running, we're down to like an average of 0.3. So I saw that thing fire up to four and a half. And I'm like, what's going on? And I went down and sure enough, the system was off. And again, maybe if I would have had a watt meter, and that could have been another way to detect that too. But again, unless you're looking at that, those things are drawing so little, you might just be happy you didn't see it. So so that to my point is that we install these passive radon systems sometimes in these homes, which is great. But do we really know if they're working? And even if there's an active system, do we know if it's been deactivated? And then you paid all this money for this equipment. How do you know that it's working? And so that's why I think these air quality monitors are pretty important. Yeah, important trend indicators of what's going on. Absolutely. I've had similar experiences with my home, things that abnormal too, Brett. So we can join the club. Yeah, you live in a modular house, right? Yeah, weirder than me. So (laughs) People wouldn't go looking for these kind of things, so. Actually, you did a blog post. Was it on the AirThings website about your radon experience? Is that my thinking right? Yeah, I did. AirThings, they wanted me to share a story. And so I shared that story. Yep. Cool. I know you also do a lot of posting on your own solar experience in your home. So tell me about that and even get specific like to, was the utility supporting it? Was there some kind of rebate or how did this whole thing proceed for you for putting solar with battery on your home? Yeah. So my original goal was to take my home net zero by the definition of net zero, meaning over the course of a year, you produce as much as you use. That was my goal going into this project and to go all electric so I could offset because you can't offset gas combustion, at least in my personal view. When I started talking to the solar installers and started getting quotes and having conversations They started talking about batteries, and I was like, batteries are kind of a joke. They don't do anything. This is the installer saying that? No, this is me, because they were talking to me about battery options or thinking about batteries. And I'm like, they don't help you go net zero. They don't generate any energy. And as I've always said in my net zero, I do net zero trainings, like how to get to net zero. I've always just dismissed batteries and just said, forget that, right? (laughs) And so I, if I could go back in the past and undo that, I wish I could. So here I am saying, I'm sorry. One of the things that had happened is I live in an area where I'm on well water. So when I lose power, I also lose water, which is really annoying. Like I'm okay with no power. That's fine. But not having water is frustrating. So I was like, all right, I can see the battery was certainly more than enough to pump my well water and keep that up and running. But is that enough to justify just getting a battery? So the next question then was, well, what other benefits are there? Well, I started reading about time of use programs and all of a sudden started finding out that our utility had a time of use program, had a two and three tier time of use program. And I started becoming convinced that it wasn't just about how much energy we use or little, but also when we use energy. When it, yeah. And that was going to become energy efficiency is very important because it will dictate when we use energy too. We'll use less of it at night as well. Lowers your footprint. Right. But we also need to focus on the when. And so I started looking at some of the MISO grid 
data that's available online on EIA. And it was really eye-opening to see that at night, I'm pulling almost 50-60% nuclear and wind where I'm at versus in the day during the peak time, there's these peaker plants that are just really nasty as far as pollution and carbon from oil and gas and all that. So I started thinking, okay, if I can use a battery to keep me off of peak, especially during the summer and swing seasons, and get my backup power, how cool is that? So I spoke to the solar contractors, said, look, let's look at the pricing. And they're like, we're going to have to basically cut your solar system in half. But then you can have this battery. You know, I had a limited budget. One of my goals, I did a mortgage refinance. So one of my goals with the mortgage refinance was to be able to save as much in my energy bills as I have to pay now back in my monthly costs. So it's sort of your own personal PACE program. Yeah, yeah, my own personal PACE program. And my thought is a lot of other people in this country probably have the same situation where maybe they don't have an extra 50 bucks a month to get into a green bank or a PACE program, which PACE is a whole other problem. But maybe they want to invest it in themselves. Interest rates are crashing. They're still crashing and they're still low, thankfully. And refinances are easier to do. So if you can refinance a solar system on your house, that's money back in your pocket, right? Now with the solar, that's easy, right? You can get your solar evaluation. You can see how much you're going to save. Obviously, you'll front end that in the summer and it won't be so nice in the winter. But overall, over the course of a year, for the most part, with the low interest rates now, I would argue that most people, if they've got good solar access, even up here, can pay what they save, if not more with a solar system on a mortgage refinance. And again, credit score, all that other stuff. So that was the case for me. I had it all penciled out real nice. And then we threw the battery into the equation. And I said, I know that if I go on the time of use program and shift my load to the night, I can save way more energy and money or way more money rather, not energy. I asked the solar installer, can you like game that out for me? Just like you gamed out my solar install. And by the way, my solar installer has been 99% accurate on their solar predictions. (laughs) But on the battery, they were just like, I don't know, have fun, just threw their hands up in the air. And I did learn recently that there is a NREL tool, or I got to go look it up, but there is a way that you can game that out now with batteries and time of use. So I just kind of took a risk thinking, all right, I'm going to see how this works because losing power and not having water is a pain. I know it'll keep me off time of use. Let's see how it goes. Let's experiment a little bit. So anyway, I ended up moving forward with that and I downsized my system from like seven kilowatt hours, which would have got me to net zero to 3.9 and a battery, a Tesla battery. And so far I've got to run my numbers for the entire year, but by staying off that peak during the summer, my bills are way down. And of course I have a more efficient heat pump and I have solar, but I also add an electric car. So you kind of have all this math I have to do. So <laughs> yeah, nothing, many variables changing at the same time. I want to break down a couple of the acronyms you threw out there. So if listeners aren't familiar, EIA is the Energy Information Administration, EIA.gov. Tons of information about energy consumption, sources, production, And you mentioned the MISO grid. Is that something? I forget that if it's MISO or MISO, basically there's grids all over the country and the Midwest. 
Yeah, what you're connected. Mine is PJM for Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, I think. Yep. Everyone heard about what happened last year. Texas has their own, right? ECROD or whatever. So technically, no matter what power plant you're on, I think no matter what, you're still really generating from the grid because they buy and sell from each other, I think. So we're not power plant, but I meant to say utility companies. And then the other thing was PACE is Property Assessed Clean Energy. Not going to delve into it, but I just want to break down the acronym for people if they want to look into that a little bit further. And it happens both on the commercial and residential side, commercial with seemingly more success than on the residential side. And I would say what I specifically used was just a traditional construction loan. Yeah. I mean, it was just pretty normal. I just threw the label on personal pace because it was what you did, but cool. Yep. And then NREL is the National Renewable Energy Lab. I actually used their PV Watts program to calculate my solar, but my solar installer actually used something called the Folsom program. And No, yeah, I'm glad you reminded me. It is PV Watts that can now break down your hourly predictions. Oh, now? Wow. Now, I will say this, though. Our solar installers were much more accurate than PV Watts. Now, in credit to PV Watts, I ran the PV Watts scenario, and I don't know anything. But I came pretty close. Right. There's so many variables it asks you to put in about the array and everything. Like that. But it does come down to an hourly basis for you, which if you can find someone to run it more accurate, I think that would be pretty cool for a battery system. So, With regard to some of the webinars that you've done, what are some of like the interesting highlights you could pull out? Maybe things that struck you that changed your way of thinking. You manage all the webinars. You're like the host, right? Yeah, I have to say I'm very selfish when it comes to the webinars because I'm like... <laughs> you pick things you're interested in, right? It's just like my podcast. That's why I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> what do I want to learn about? And turns out that there's like 200 other people who want to learn about it too, I guess. Yeah, so, isn't that wild? Yeah, and it works out really well. So I have to say like everyone I speak with, I walk away like I got to follow up on that idea, that new concept, and it changes and steers me in another way. So it's hard to pinpoint like just specifically one thing. I also built, because we do continuing ed, I build out a quiz on each one. So I have to actually listen so closely that I'm trying to figure out, okay, what are 10 good questions and 10 multiple choice answers for those questions that trick you a little bit, but don't throw you off too much. And sometimes I have to rewatch the webinars just to write that down. I'm trying to think about some that had jumped out. But yeah, I literally on each one, I'm writing something, a new idea down on what can be done for that. So I know, for example, we did one recently on humidification and the importance of that. And I didn't really know that there was all these differences. I'm sure your audience is probably like, I know all this, but I didn't know there were all these differences between different types of humidifiers, steam humidifiers, and what the efficiency is on each one of those. So that was just something that I was like, oh, that's something I'm learning new. I thought there was just your traditional whole home humidifier, and that's the way it is. The Green Home Institute, that's a membership organization, correct? Can you tell us a little bit about that? We've been a membership organization for a very long time, and just recently over the last few years, rebuilt that. We just hit 200 supporting members as of this year, our largest ever. And it's made up of individuals, it's made up of students, it's made up of corporations. And specifically, we have some grant funds in West Michigan for affordable housing agencies who we throw a free membership their way for people working on that. So we have people in other countries who are members, and we've got a couple in Canada. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, yeah. One of the cool things is just all these webinars we talked about, it's just you basically get instant access to those webinars. 
And then also, if you can't attend the webinar, but you want to pick up some continuing ed, we have a platform we've created where you can go in, as I mentioned, a quiz, watch the webinar, take the quiz, get the CEU, and it's completely free for all of our members. What are the types of CEUs that you offer? So right now we've got American Institute of Architects, HSW, LEED, we've got BPI, we've got some Passive House, we've been looking at more formally getting Nate ones as well. And then a lot of ours do apply to state design and other licenses. Every state is unique in how they enforce that. But I've been told by many people around the country, they've been able to use it for their particular state license. In this journey that you've taken both personally and professionally, what does the Brett Little of 2022 see as the major trends in, say, the last 20 years? I am really geeked about 24-7 carbon-free movement. If it's a UN movement, I'm not exactly excited about that particular one, but the idea behind it. So. I think we need to shift from net zero to 24-7 zero carbon, because here's the deal. Like I said, I wanted to go net zero, but the joke about net zero is you basically just front load a bunch of solar onto the grid in the summer and use it to pay for your sins of using carbon in the winter. And it doesn't work because I still have to buy all that carbon in the wintertime, no matter what. I could have 10,000 solar panels in the summer and I could look really good and I could pay zero dollars or make money depending on like if in your state or Minnesota. But at the end of the day, I still have to buy that carbon right now, heating my house with it, no matter what. So what we need to do is switch to 24-7 zero carbon. And it's a hard switch. It's a hard conversation to have. And I don't know how we're going to do it. It might involve hydrogen. I don't know. But I want to find out more and have some more sessions about that this year. And I'm excited to start that conversation. And I think net zero is on its way out, me personally. And I think it had its place and its time and it's time to move on. So that's where I'm at. And I hope to journey on that. And and the same continuing that conversation goes into our building construction. So embodied energy, right? How much energy goes into the materials we're putting into our new buildings and renovations? And how do we get that down to a low carbon, zero carbon aspect? And that's going to be tough as well. But I think it's going to be worth having that conversation about that. And we started that last year, but we hope to do that more. And then also, as I was talking about earlier, was air quality in our homes and smart ventilation. I'm hoping to line up a smart ventilation panel this year where we can just talk about how when an issue happens in our house, we don't have to think about it and our systems can kick on to take care of it. That's the definition you're given of smart ventilation. The sensor decides what the ventilation level needs to be, how long it needs to run until it reaches a improved set point. Yeah, or you, of course, you as the user tell it where you want it to be, and then it knows. So like, for example, if I burn something on my stove, my sensor detects that and it kicks my range head down. So I see it working. But it's really clunky. Sometimes it takes 10 minutes to detect that pollution after I've been breathing it in. Other times it just doesn't come on. And so I'm not going to name any names or throw anyone under the bus here, but it's new, right? It's new stuff. So how do we get to a point where it's just so it's not people like me who's messing around with it, but your average person who could probably care less, but just expects it to work. So I think those are going to be exciting things to see this year that I'm hoping to have more conversations about. 
we could wrap this up now and give our audience back their ears here in a couple minutes. And we've loaned them out for a little bit. You're definitely very enthusiastic, very thoughtful about your approach. Kudos on what you've done personally and professionally. How about a closing thought for the listeners and something regarding some myth that you see or misconception that's out there that's still longstanding and something you recognize as people don't quite get it? It's really the same myth that we have been dealing with long before my time in the sustainability movement. And I just see it more and more and have to continue to dispel it. Obviously, we try to help people follow full green certification attributes. That's one of our goals, holistically speaking, energy, health, materials, water, place, and no matter what certification it is. And so again, the myth is that to do that, it just cost way too much, that it's impractical, too difficult to do, too challenging to do. It's not worth doing, or maybe our building codes are already there. We're already good enough. We're already perfect in our codes. (laughs) So it's just every day really dispelling that myth with people in conversation. And sometimes it's a broad conversation about green in general, and other times it's honed all the way into a specific energy efficiency feature of transitioning to heat pumps, for example. It could be very specific, but the myth itself perpetuates that something new that's going to save energy just costs too much to do. And I think this all started from the coffee shop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's a very cool thing, though. You never know where your message, the messages you in the discussion we've had now, where they will reach, how they will impact somebody, what kind of follow-up will come from that. So kudos to you for sharing your story here today. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Bill. All right. And listeners of Building HVAC Science, we'll give you back your ears and we'll be back at you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening in to this episode where we spoke with Brett Little of the Green Home Institute and also just a person who's very passionate about sustainability. If you want to get in touch with me about any topics in building HVAC science, you can drop me an email at bill at truetechtools.com. I want to thank you for listening. I want to mention that the Building HVAC Science podcast is a production of True Tech Tools Limited. I also host the Res Talk podcast, where you can learn more about the whole world of home energy ratings and peripheral topics. You can find Building HVAC Science in all the typical podcast apps, or also just by going to buildinghvacscience.com. Again, thank you for listening in, and we hope you come back again to listen more at the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Take care.